Would you pray with me one more time? Father, as we approach your word now, we confess that we want to know Christ better. Father, we want to see your glory more clearly in the person of your Son. So Lord, this morning, open our eyes to see beautiful things from your word. God, let our hearts be struck in a new, fresh way by the glory of Jesus Christ. Do these things for the sake of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we are in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, continuing a sermon series in the book of Philippians. I think this is the 10th sermon, perhaps, that we've done in Philippians. So we're in Philippians chapter 3, we'll be in the first section of that chapter. Growing up, uh, one hobby that I had, my dad and I kind of did all the time, was collecting celebrity autographs. And we wouldn't, and it sounds kind of weird, and we wouldn't collect them by purchasing them, we would actually go get them. So as a hobby, we would go and camp out different places and meet celebrities and get autographs, and we would end up selling some of those later on, and um, some of them were worth quite a bit of money. Over the years, we had the opportunity to meet all sorts of sports figures, political figures, entertainers, what have you. So from Michael Jordan to Hank Aaron to Tiger Woods to Taylor Swift to Don Knotts to Donald Trump to Barack Obama to Mikhail Gorbachev, actually. And the, you young folks in the room, that name might not mean very much to you, Mikhail Gorbachev, but some of us gray heads in the room, he was a pretty big deal. Uh, in a little place called the Soviet Union, maybe you've heard of it. Um, actually, funny story, I have a picture of Mikhail Gorbachev with his hands around my throat. True story. I won't tell you how we got into that situation, but that picture exists. So it's a pretty cool thing. You know, you can show people the autographs that you've gotten and pictures that you've got with these celebrities, and it makes for good stories to tell at parties, that sort of thing. It's pretty cool. But, of course, I don't actually know any of these people, right? We found out where they were flying in for an event, or they're staying at a specific hotel for a, a concert or whatever. We could meet them, but I didn't really know them. And they surely don't know me. So don't name drop me to Donald Trump or Barack Obama or anybody. They probably won't remember me. Uh, nonetheless, it was really exciting. It was exhilarating to you know, see Michael Jordan you know, walk by and you get to talk to him for a few minutes and get an autograph and get a picture with him and it's exhilarating, it was exciting. We sat there for hours waiting for him to come by this way and then when he did, it was, uh, it was exciting. We wanted to be there, make sure we were waiting there when that person came by. And uh, you know, people sort of marvel at it and you know, come over to my parents' house and see all these autographs we have on the wall. Whoa, you met that person. Yep, met them. On an eternal scale though, Standing here before the Word of God sounds pretty silly to boast in that sort of thing or be excited about that sort of thing, meeting those sorts of people. Again, I don't know them. They're not my friends. They don't mean anything to me. Yet all this work, all this excitement, all these countless hours of waiting 
Well, in the text before us today, Paul's going to say there's surpassing worth in knowing Christ, knowing him. Being able to say that you know Christ is infinitely more important than knowing any person that's ever existed or that you've ever known or thought about. Certainly more exciting than just meeting them. The one who rules over all the kings of the earth has stooped to know you, Christian. And that's worth rejoicing. That's worth celebrating. It's worth considering and examining and thinking about. And that will be the focus of this sermon. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Having a relationship with him. Experiencing what it's like to know him. The surpassing worth of knowing the most significant person that has ever existed. By far. That's Christ. We're in Philippians 3. We're in verses 1 through 11. We've actually preached on 1 through 11 already. So this is going to be split into two sermons. So the first sermon was more about Paul's experience. Right? So Paul's specific experience of having all these accolades and this pedigree, this grand list of things that are true about him that he once boasted in for righteousness and now no longer. So the first sermon was much about Paul. Paul's experience, things about these verses that are specific to Paul, and then what that means for us. This sermon will be more on the aspects of this text that are universal to every Christian. Right, so there are things about this text that are specific to Paul, and not every Christian shares that experience. So some of us in this room might say, yes, we came to Christ sort of like Paul with some sort of religious pedigree, grew up in church, memorized all sorts of Bible verses, Self-righteousness was our besetting sin, perhaps, and we had to lay those things aside as means for boasting and humble ourselves in coming to Christ. Others, perhaps, would say, oh, there, I had, there was no mistake about my sinfulness. I knew I was a wretch, and I came to Christ, and Christ, Christ took me in. But these, this sermon, these elements of the text that we're going to look at this morning, they are universal to every Christian. It's not just specific to Paul. It's true of all of us. So Paul's going to say some things in this text that apply to his experience, some things that apply to every Christian. We're looking at the things this morning that apply to every Christian. And those things are going to center on knowing Jesus Christ. So let's look at our text. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, that righteousness, that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, what elements of this text are universal to every Christian? What things in this text are true about you this morning exactly as they were true about Paul when he wrote this? Well, there's a few things I want to sort of just pull out and examine. Uh, we'll, we'll spend the most time towards the end of the sermon. So the, the third point. The first point, though, what's true of every Christian? Well, number one, we have the righteousness of God in Christ. We have the righteousness of God. We have it in Christ. You see this uh, sort of alluded to in verse 3. We are the circumcision. So this is dealing with righteousness. So again, we talked about this briefly in the last sermon, how the, the, the Israel, the, let's say the, uh, the Judaizers perhaps, those that are trying to convince the Philippians, the Christians in Philippi, to embrace more uh, Judaistic elements to their Christianity, specifically revolving around circumcision. We get that from Paul saying, we don't put confidence in the flesh, and I want you to look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's what he means. So much circumcision there. And he says, we are the real circumcision. Those in Christ, we are the true circumcision, not those who demand that you actually circumcise. So for righteousness, we don't put any confidence in the flesh. We don't put any confidence in circumcision. Instead, if we look later down in the passage, look at verse 9. He says that he suffered the loss of all things so that he may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So again, this is largely what we spoke about last time. This idea of Christians having God's righteousness. So we examined the, the previous source of Paul's righteousness, where he thought that all of these things that he lists would give him merit, give him reason for confidence before God. But he's forsaken those, as should every Christian so we talked about last time. We should forsake all other dependencies and rely solely on Jesus Christ for righteousness. So what's going what's to commend me to God? How am I to feel safe before a, a holy and just God who feels wrath towards sin? Well, because I have his own righteousness. I have it from Christ, through Christ. So whatever your past, we've established that the present reality of every Christian in this room is the same. That in Christ, we have God's righteousness. We possess God's righteousness. But like I said, we spent quite a bit of time looking at that in the previous sermon, so we're going to go on to our next point, number two. What else is universal to every Christian here? We are united to Christ through faith. We're united to Christ through faith. Now, where do I get union with Christ out of this text? Well, down in verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So Paul says, I count all things as lost if I, if I may be found in Christ. Having, I'm skipping ahead a little bit there, but grammatically that works. Having a righteousness that comes from God. So, in some sense, in Paul's mind, it seems like this idea of having righteousness from God is connected to his union with Christ. So, this righteousness doesn't seem to be through sort of a, a legal type of justification, imputed righteousness in the courtroom from the judge. We're declared innocent because of Christ. We get Christ's righteousness imputed to us. 
Not in this text. In this text, it seems like that righteousness comes to us by virtue of our being united to Christ. Because we are united to him, joined to him, we get access to his righteousness. Uh, The scholar Richard Gaffin noted that the central aspect of this text is, quote, not necessarily justification by faith, but union with the resurrected Christ by faith. And we get our righteousness from there. Um, In my opinion, this is one of the great overlooked glories of Christian existence. It's something that Christians, it's true about each of us, but we just don't end up giving it a lot of thought throughout the day that I am united to Jesus Christ. I am joined to to Jesus Christ. We could say we are found in Christ. It's this that Paul says is the reason he counts all things as dung, as rubbish, as worse than worthless so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. So, Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, you have been mysteriously, mystically, comprehensively joined to Jesus Christ, united to him, engrafted into him. Right now, that's your present reality. And for eternity, forever you will be joined to Jesus Christ. Uh, It's like a marriage. You're joined to your spouse. But the marriage is just a picture, right? So, but even in marriage, God has joined you together. Let not man separate it. But it does end at death. Not so with our union with Christ. Uh, The the marriage picture will will end, but the the reality that marriage represents will last forever. That's the idea that we are united together with Christ. Even from eternity past, you were united to Christ. Before the world ever existed, God chose you, Christian, in Christ. Before the foundations of the world, in Christ, God had predetermined that you would be conformed to his image. How's that brought about? Well, Christ's spirit now dwells in you. And you are found in him. This is the mystery and wonder of our being united to Christ. Christ dwells in us, really, factually, actually, and you are found in him. He in you, you in him. Christ freely takes your miseries on himself just as he freely shares all of his benefits with you. You get access to Christ's righteousness, Christ's merits, Christ's rewards, Uh, Ephesians 1 says that every spiritual blessing, our brother Andrew Cartledge said this in his prayer, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is secured for you in Christ. So because Christ has secured every spiritual blessing and you are united to Christ, all things are yours. For you are in Christ and Christ is God's. This is the Christian's union with Christ. It is real, mystical, strange, Hard to find corollaries for it in our experience, but it is real. And how else could the death of somebody 2,000 years ago actually have an effect on your life today? Right? Like some guy halfway around the world, halfway around the world died a couple millennia ago, and somehow that has a real, actual effect on your life, your experience right now. How could this be? Well, because if you're a Christian, he and you have been joined. You've been united together. 
In fact, he was given your soul for safekeeping before the foundation of the world. So Jesus says in the high priestly prayer, he, he communicates that God had given him souls and he would not lose a single one of them. That's you, Christian. Before you ever began to exist, God had determined that you would forever be united to his son. How ought that to inform your daily experience of knowing Christ? How ought you to think about your relationship to Jesus when you approach him in prayer? When you commune with him, knowing that you have been united in a sense for eternity past and will forever be united to one another. What closeness, what sweetness of communion we ought to enjoy with Christ. Knowing, considering that we are found in him and have access to all spiritual blessings through him. Christ himself said that his own joy would be in us. Right? I've spoken these things to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. You want joy, Christian? How about Christ's own joy? How about fullness of joy? Forevermore. It's yours. Yours for the taking. Because you're in Christ. This really is true of you. It's bound up in the knowledge of him who has united you to himself. Let's keep going. The reason for all this, according to this text, all these glorious things that we see here, is that we would know Christ. So Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things, I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That so that, so the, the reason for this is that I may know him. The reason that Paul counts all these other things as loss is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So that third universal element of the Christian experience, the main element of the Christian experience that's highlighted in this text is our knowing Christ. So that's our third point. All of this so that we might know Christ. It seems that the great end of this text, the great goal, the great objective of this text is an experimental, experiential, actual, really reflected in your, the hours and minutes of your life sort of experience of Jesus Christ. And I want to especially reflect on this point. We're, we're not leaving this point for the rest of the sermon. We're, we're camping out here. Because if you look at the text closely, so, so look down at the text, and look for that phrase, surpassing worth, in verse 8. Okay? What is it in this text, grammatically, that is of surpassing worth? It's not actually, grammatically, Christ that is of surpassing worth. Of course he is. But in this text, it's the knowing of Christ that is of surpassing worth. You see that? Look at the text. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So, it's, of course, Christ is of surpassing worth, but what good is that to me if I have no access to his worth? If he's glorious way over there, separated from me, or rather I separated from him, what, what, what worth is that to me? It's like there are 
massive diamond mines in Kimberley, South Africa that are worth untold fortunes. It doesn't mean anything to me. Why? Because they're not mine. I don't have them. Similarly with Christ, it's not as if Christ is over there. He is of surpassing worth, and we can have nothing to do with him. No, the knowing of Christ, our experience of Christ daily is of surpassing worth. Untold worth, unimaginable wealth in knowing Christ. A a brief word as well, um, because it's the surpassing worth of Christ that makes all these other things look like rubbish. A brief word about that word rubbish. I imagine any preacher who takes up this text has something to say about that word. Um, It seems like the word refers to excrement, like fecal matter. The King James puts it this way. The King James James says, I count all things as dung, right? Some people would actually say that Paul is trying to actually use something of a four-letter word. There's There's a shock value to what Paul is saying here with this word. Whether that's true or not, there's some disagreement about that. It's clear that what Paul does want us to realize is that not only are these attempts at righteousness worthless, they're they're repulsive. There's a revulsion there. They're worse than worthless. They're dung when compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So if you want righteousness, you want agreement with God, You've got a stack of accolades and pedigree over here, dung, rubbish, excrement, when compared with knowing Christ. That's how we relate to God, is by knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. So, let's examine what's in this text concerning the knowledge of Christ, and then I want to make just a few sort of general applications um, at the end. So, what do we see? That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. So apparently part of knowing Christ is knowing the power of Christ's resurrection. I think this is obvious. Uh, This isn't merely a a mental assent to the fact that Christ resurrected. There's an event called the resurrection that happened in history, although that is necessary. There seems to be some way in which the actual power, the force of the resurrection of Christ, is supposed to in some way affect our present experience. It's not just an event that happened, There's a a power that is present with us right now that affects the way we live from day to day. Christ's past resurrection is supposed to in some way affect our present experience. So, how does this happen? Well, you tell me. What does it do for your present experience in the world now to know that Christ has decisively defeated death? And that because he has mysteriously united you to himself, he has guaranteed, beyond all doubt, that you will never die. That you will rise with him because he rose. You will never see death. How does knowing the power of Christ's resurrection affect us? Well, in ways it's obvious. We look forward to a future resurrection. But... I want to look elsewhere where Paul brings up similar points and and, and highlight one way that the power of Christ's resurrection affects our daily life now. Here's what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead 
will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so that's, that's kind of what we've seen so far, right? Uh, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you're going to get raised from the dead too. Paul goes on in Romans 8. So then, brothers, okay, so what does Paul conclude about our, our daily experience based on this fact that, that Christ's resurrection power will guarantee that we too will be raised from the dead? How should we then live? So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, it seems like one way in which Christ's resurrection power is brought to bear on our experience is it radically changes the way we think about our sin. Paul concludes in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you too are going to be raised. So then, put to death the deeds of the body. Don't sin anymore. Not exactly the conclusion we might have drawn. That's not an isolated event. Listen to this in Romans 6. If we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So many of the things that we're talking about in our text are, are brought up just in that sentence. Union with Christ, death, resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Christian, because you have been united to Christ, the resurrection power of Christ, the power of his resurrection, and your knowledge of that is, is, is renovative. It, it, it changes you. The way you interact with sin, the way you think about yourself and other people, all of that changes. Because you will not be the same that you've been before if you have had the resurrection power of Christ sort of applied to you through union with him. You're different. You're changed. And that's good news, right? Like you don't have to be who you've been before. You've seen sin and struggle and conflict in your soul. Now, guess what? Christ has been raised. And so... You are now alive to God and dead to your sin. It's good news for the Christian. Because Christ is now alive, you also are alive to God. Because Christ died and you died with him, you're dead to sin. That's the, re that's the power of his resurrection. Applied to you because you're, you're found in him. And so, when you put to death anger in your heart, we looked at that in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Alex led, led us through a sermon on anger. So when you put to death anger in your heart, anger at your brother, at your sister, or when you refuse to allow your eyes to look lustfully at another, when you put to death any manner of ungodliness in your heart or in your members, 
you are knowing Christ in the power of his resurrection. Christ's death is your, your union with him in his death is coming to fruition in your life as you put to death your sin. That's just one way in which the power of Christ's resurrection is known by the Christian. The power of Christ's resurrection ought to bring an end to our sinning. We don't want to sin anymore. We're dead to sin. Christ is raised, so I'm alive to God. Why would I sin? Reckon yourselves indeed dead to sin and alive to God. What other good news do we have from Christ's resurrection power? Well, perhaps most obviously, we have a coming resurrection ourselves. Right? If, if Christ is raised, we will be raised. We're united to him. What's he going to be raised and not us? Perish the thought. So, we are able now to look above the circumstances, the trials, the pains of life on this fallen world and look forward to a glorious resurrection, the glorious hope of the Christian church, a bodily, physical resurrection, just like Christ. We think of our brothers and sisters that are asleep. We rejoice that they will live. They will rise and do so gloriously. We think of the certainty of our own death. I mean, how could you really go on if you believed that all you are is matter, acted on by random time and chance, and all that awaits you is death? Everything that you think you love, it's really just synapses in your brain, but everything you think you love is going to be taken from you. How could we go on? How could we live in such a state, knowing that the only thing that awaits us is the grave, and our own great-grandchildren probably won't even know our names. But Christ has been raised. And so we know that anything we lose in this life, we will gain a hundredfold in the life to come. We know that there is a life to come. We know that these very hands will serve Christ forever. Like these very eyes. You know that, right? That the body that's going to be resurrected is your body. It is the eyes you have in your skull right now that will actually see Christ. Resurrected, glorified, made gloriously like his resurrection body forever. Your own body will be raised and you will know Christ forever. This is a glorious hope for Christians. And that glorious promise of something that's coming in the future enables us right now in the present to gain real, present hope. Because we have certainty of what awaits us in the future. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. So real, present, glorious hope because we know that because Christ was raised, we too will be raised. Because of the resurrection, we find in the present courage to face the difficulties of this life. When, when, when the, the most horrific and horrible things befall us, we can take heart. We can have fresh courage because we know it's temporary. All of our afflictions are light and momentary compared to the glory that is to be re revealed to us, the eternal weight of glory. That's knowing Christ. That's knowing the power of his resurrection. And Paul seems to sound a note like this in the next phrase. Along with the power of Christ's resurrection, we're also to participate in Christ's sufferings. 
You see that in the text. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Again, the way the King James says this is uh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship. There's a participation that we have in Christ's sufferings. And it's appropriate that Paul should bring up Christ's sufferings here. It's not all resurrections, right? You don't get a resurrection without a death. So there's a cross before there's a crown. There's suffering before there's glory. John Calvin notes on this passage, after comprehending the power of the resurrection, Christ crucified is set before us, that we may follow him through tribulations and distresses, for we must die before we may live. So what's meant by this phrase? that we share in his sufferings, that we know the fellowship of his sufferings, we participate in his sufferings. Well, there's actually a lot of disagreement on exactly what Paul means by this phrase. Perhaps it means that you're destined to suffer like Christ suffered. You'll be reviled. You'll be persecuted. Hostility, reproach, slander, perhaps even physical violence will befall you for the, for the sake of Christ, just as it did with Christ. Uh, we're probably in this text talking about distinctly Christian suffering. So not necessarily any and every suffering that befalls you, but suffering that befalls you specifically for the sake of Christ. This is part of the Christian experience. No servant is above his master. Or perhaps Paul's getting at something maybe even a little bit deeper. Uh, that there will be a fellowship with Christ himself as we suffer. That, remember, the governing idea here is knowing Christ. And so when we share in sufferings, We know Christ in a special way. We have a a unique fellowship with him as we suffer with him. And that makes sense. When all around our soul gives way, he then is all our hope and stay. Uh, We we have a special reliance and dependence on Christ as we suffer. Well, whatever Paul means specifically here, we can draw out a few things that are important. First of all, Paul frequently does this, where he pairs together resurrection and suffering, Uh, the necessity of suffering with the expectation of glory, right? So you expect coming glory, we've got to prepare for suffering. Suffering awaits us between now and glory. Again, back to Romans 8, After Paul gives all these just spectacular promises to Christians everywhere, he says, we are heirs of God, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So we don't get Christ's life without Christ's death, right? We don't get Christ's glory without sharing the sufferings that Christ himself experienced. The author of Hebrews says it this way, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. So Old Testament imagery there where they would exclude somebody from the camp and and put them outside, that's where Christ is. Let's go to him there. Let's suffer with him. Let's bear the reproach that he endured. So, when we bear reproach for Christ's sake, we're we're aligning ourselves with Christ. We're saying, I'm with him. 
If he suffers, I, I suffer. What happens to him happens to me. And it's good that it should be so. Because he was glorified. And so will we be. We are conformed to him in his death so that we will be raised with him in a life like his. His death was a, a, a prelude to everlasting life. But his life was just on the earth was just a prelude to his death. And so our lives are to be conformed to the death of Christ. We are to suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We are to expect suffering, but that suffering that we experience with resurrection power in our pockets, right? Uh, before making some applications, I just want to sort of summarize. This is a, a text from a book called The Method of Grace in Gospel Redemption. It's by a Puritan named John Flavel. Here's a Flavel's summary on what it's like to know Christ. Whatever grace is found in any of the saints that makes them desirable, that makes them lovely, wisdom in one, faith in another, patience in a third, all of these graces center in Christ as the rivers do in the sea. A believer can find nothing in Christ that is distasteful and finds nothing wanting in Christ that is desirable. Such is the fullness of wisdom, of righteousness, of sanctification and redemption that is in Christ. Nothing is left to desire except the full enjoyment of him. Oh, says the soul, how completely happy I shall be if I can but win Christ. I would not envy the nobles of all the earth were I but in Christ. I am hungry, I am thirsty, and Christ is meat and drink indeed. This is the best thing in all the world for me. Because so necessary, so suitable is Christ to the needs of a soul that is ready to perish. I am law condemned. I am self condemned. I am a sinner trembling every moment for fear of execution. But in Christ is complete righteousness to justify my soul. Christ's blood is a fountain of merit. His spirit is a fountain of holiness and purity. Oh, the manifold wisdom and unsearchable love of God our Father to prepare and furnish for us such a Christ. So fully answering all of our needs, all of our distresses, all of our fears, and all of our burdens as poor sinners. Thus, the believing soul approves of Christ as the very best for itself. None but Christ, none but Christ. Amen. None but Christ. I love that line where he says that God has furnished for us, prepared for us, such a Christ. So suited to meet our needs. Every need you have, is, Christ is perfectly suited to meet that need. So, how glorious to know him, to commune with him. However, I would ask, do you feel this way right now about knowing Christ? Does your relationship with Jesus, your union with him, does it excite worship in you? Gratitude, joy. Well, if not, I just want to give a few moments to think about why that might be. I want to take a few moments to speak to those who, who don't currently experience this relationship with Christ. First, to those who are not Christians. Not only is this not your current experience of Christ, but this knowledge of Christ sounds completely foreign to you. 
So when I'm reading John Flavel there, this glorious exposition of what it's like to know Christ, doesn't really, no dots are connecting for you there. Sounds alien, sounds foreign, sounds strange. You've never known Christ to be that way. If that's the case, I want to say the obvious to you. You don't know Christ. If you have no experience, uh, nothing of that sort of experience of who Jesus is, then you're just not a Christian. Whatever your denominational affiliation, whatever your parents' religion, whatever good deeds or good intentions you might have, you need to repent of sin and come to Christ. But the good news is, He will have you. Christ delights to receive sinners. That's the only person He will receive. The necessary condition for you coming to Christ is knowing that you're a sinner. So know Him. If you don't know Christ, come to Him. Leave all else behind. Count all else as loss. Whatever stands between you and Christ, push it out of the way and run to Him. Go to Him. Throw anything away if it prevents you from knowing Christ. He will have you. We sing this song often. Jesus sinners does receive. Word of surest consolation. Comfort. There's one verse that says, Jesus sinners does receive. Oh, may all this saying ponder. Who in sin's delusions live and from God and heaven wander. Here is hope for all who grieve. Jesus sinners does receive. So if you don't know Christ, if you don't have this knowledge of Christ, come to him. He will have you. To those who are believers, uh, or at least perhaps are believers, who doubt whether or not they genuinely know Christ. So you're a believer this morning, or at least you, you hope you are. You sincerely mean to be but you doubt whether your knowledge of Christ is genuine, sincere, heartfelt. You fear that you might be a phony. The experience of doubting whether you are Christ's, doubting whether you are a Christian, is uncomfortable. It can be terrifying. But it is fairly common. Uh, there have been stretches of my Christian experience where I have been terribly anxious, panicked, at the prospect that I might not really be a Christian. My knowledge of Christ is just wishful thinking. I'm not truly the Lord's. I'm not united to him, but I'm destined for wrath. So, if you're grappling this morning with whether or not you are genuinely Christ, whether your knowledge of Christ is sincere and real, let me attempt to encourage you. Let me encourage you to look away from your feelings. Uh, stop inspecting your faith to see if it's genuine. Uh, stop, this may sound strange, stop agonizing over your sin and supposed hypocrisy and just look to Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. If you want to be done with doubt, then instead of doubting, just throw yourself on Christ. Toss yourself into his arms. Instead of thinking about your relationship to Christ, Go to him. Confess to him, to him, your utter reliance and dependence on him. Your, your, your complete 
rejection of any other means of gaining his good graces. That's knowing him, leaning on him for life, depending on him as your eternal food. That's knowing Christ. Uh, But am I being sincere? You're doing it again, right? You're, You're thinking about yourself again. Stop it. Just look again to Christ. Stop looking at your sincerity, inspecting your faith, because when you inspect it, you will find that it is mixed. We are riddled with impure motives. So fix your eyes on Christ. John Flavel said to those who are doubting, whether Christ be yours or not, perhaps you cannot tell, but that you are resolved to be his, that you can tell. Whether he will save you may be but a doubt, but that you resolve to lie at his feet and wait only on him and never to look to another for salvation, there is no doubt. I think it's the same author that said elsewhere, if you doubt whether you are Christ, just run to his arms and say, if I perish, I will perish there. John Newton has said, the great pastor John Newton, said every step along the path of life is a battle for the Christian to keep his two eyes on Christ. So are you doubting this morning? Look to Christ. Look to his mercy, his grace, his kind disposition towards sinners. He will have you. He delights to save sinners who come to him for aid. That is knowledge of Christ. When you forsake all other dependencies and you resolve that come what may, whatever my feelings, whatever my frames, I will go to his arms and there I will stay. That's surpassing worth. That's the knowledge of Christ. So if you're weary with doubt, tired of constantly being whipped back and forth by your feelings, stop focusing on your feelings. They are subjective. They are fickle. They will change. Christ is gloriously objective, fixed, stable, does not move, an anchor for the soul. So to those who doubt, if you would know Christ, look to him and know him truly. Next, to those whose hearts are cold, It's not an uncommon experience for Christians to suffer from a sort of cold apathy towards Christ. Though it's somewhat common, it's not becoming of a Christian to be apathetic towards Christ. If we're convinced the communion with Christ is of surpassing worth, our chief good, why are we so negligent of Christ? Why do our hearts wander so frequently from Him, so far from Him? Why is living in the light of his presence so difficult? Well, there's a multitude of reasons this might be so. Right? There's there's a host of obstacles between us and the knowledge of Christ. The influence of the world, the devil, your own, my own wicked flesh. Perhaps you've been a stranger to the spiritual disciplines. Prayer and Bible reading have just fallen off of your priority list. Whatever the reason, you find yourself in a place that this knowledge of Christ... Though you are Christ's, is not your current experience. The vibrancy of your relationship with Christ is dim. The Puritan William Bridge described this experience in this way. 
when I come to prayer or any Christian duty, I find so much deadness, so much dullness of my heart and spirit. When I go to prayer, either prayer is absent from me altogether or I find no life therein. If I go to hear the word, I'm not attentive, but I'm filled with distractions. Whatever duty I perform, I lack life and love in it. My heart is like a stone. And even if I have been long at prayer, I am never the better for it. The Lord hears me not, regards me not. Is it not a, a sore affliction for a poor creature such as I to be shut outside of God's door? Such a friend as God is. It is more bitter than death to be robbed of prayer. You feel this way, Christian. Does your heart feel cold and lifeless and dead when you go to commune with Christ, to, 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 to know him in intimate communion, fellowship? Does your heart feel dead? Let me ask you, do you feel any inclination in your heart towards love for Christ? Does, does the name of Christ and the thought of knowing him, does it strike a, a single spark against the, the stone coldness of your heart? Uh, when I describe what it's like to, to know Christ and I read these descriptions, does any little part of you say, yes, I want that. That's what I want. I want to know Christ that way. Come to him. Approach him. Embrace him. Know him. There's no other solution. Whatever the frames of your heart, there's no, where else are you going to go? What else do you propose to do? Come to Christ. He will have you. Well, if I'm honest, I don't feel like it'll do anything. Your heart is not so cold and so hardened that Christ cannot melt it. Uh, George Herbert, I don't know if any of you know that name. He's a Christian poet from like the 1600s. Glorious, glorious poems. He has one poem called The Sinner. So this is from the perspective of a, of a sinner. He's overwhelmed with his sins. He's asking the Lord, begging the Lord to change his wicked heart. Here's what he says. It's the end of the poem. Lord, hear my call. And though my hard heart scarce to thee can groan, so even though my heart is so hard, it seems like I can't even utter a single groan to you, so though my hard heart scarce to thee can groan, remember that thou once didst write in stone. Though my hard heart scarce to thee can groan, remember, Lord, that once you wrote in stone. God, speaking of the Ten Commandments there, using that as an image, God, with his finger, wrote his law into bare rock, cold rock. Lord, do that on my heart. Write your law, make your, your word, your law, your son beautiful to my cold heart. If God has written his law into literal stone, he can act upon your cold and apathetic heart, Christian, but you must go to him. Don't just sit there waiting for your feelings to change. Go to Christ. Christ waits for you, beckons you, tells you to come, loves you, pities you, seeks and delights to help you. So go to him. Know him. Commune with him. Finally, to those who presently enjoy this relationship with Christ, you spent time with him this morning. Even as I preach, as we sung, you've been communing with him this whole time. 
precious is Christ to your heart. Well, Paul is going to urge you not to rest on your past experiences with Christ. This is where we'll be going in our next text. Paul says, I forget those things that are behind. I press forward. I press on. So don't think that just because you have enjoyed unimaginable warmth and affection and closeness with Christ, that there's not still more of Christ to enjoy. There's infinitely more of him to discover. Still greater vistas to see, greater depths to explore of Christ's love. Do you notice, it's often those who have known Christ best, who've known him longest, that most fervently seek to know him more. So if if you've had wonderful, rich, ongoing experiences with Christ, be encouraged. There's infinitely more awaiting you, more of Christ to know, and it is of surpassing worth. So continue to abound in your knowledge of Christ. Seek to know him today as you have in the past. Continue to come to him for life over and over again until you meet him face to face. And today, now, we'll have a unique opportunity to exercise this. In a few moments, we will we'll be able to come to Christ at the table to take the bread, to take the cup, and to, to receive those things as a, as a symbol of receiving Christ. So, if your heart has been doubtful, if your heart has been cold, if you've never embraced Christ before, take this opportunity today to know him, receive him. The way that we're about to pick up bread and drink the cup These are symbols of how we ought to take Christ, receive him, have his body as food and his blood as drink to nourish our souls. So in the Lord's Supper, Christian, don't just partake of the elements, but do so as an act of knowing Christ, as an expression, a a tangible symbol of the way in which you are allowed to know him and receive him unto yourself. May we do so this morning to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, our hearts are so fickle. We are led about by our passions so frequently. Our attention is diverted to lesser things so easily. God, we ask you, capture our attention with the knowledge of Christ. Make knowing your Son the most glorious and beautiful and attractive thing in our sight. Change our hearts if they are cold, if they are doubting, if they have to this point rejected your son, God, change our hearts. Help us to come to Christ. Act upon us by your spirit this morning. Bring us to your son. God, thank you for the opportunity to partake of the Lord's table this morning. Help us to do so circumspectly and help us to worship Christ therein. In Jesus' name, amen.